Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, Episode 41. Is everybody in the world going to die before someone finds the answer? Do I have to remind you that theory is the beginning of solution? What are we up against? Is it a dangerous thing? All I've ever known to be true is a lie. I didn't say it would be easy. I just said it would be the truth. Welcome to Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, where we break away from religious systems and man-made dogma to learn the Word of God from an independent Hebraic perspective. And now your host, the prophecy buff who tackles the tough stuff, Alexander Lawrence. Hello and shalom. This is Watchman Alexander. And this is Terry Arnold. What a great week. You know, um, the Lord is doing awesome stuff in my life and the life of my family. And I think that he's doing good things in your lives too. And we just have to stop and take inventory for a moment and be grateful for what he's doing. You know, it's a crazy time. There's a lot of weirdness going on. I was going through the news earlier today and <laughs> just trying not to let it pull me down. There's a lot of uh, difficult things happening in the world, especially if you're a Christian, especially if you're a believer and you don't want to see things going in an increasingly godless, painful direction or what you know is eventually going to turn out to be painful because um, it doesn't line up with God's will. And so it's all going to crumble sooner or later. Uh, but despite all that, God is good. God is still on the throne and uh, um, he is still calling the shots. Uh, sometimes we got to call down those shots in the form of artillery. So we got to be like spotters for God. Yeah. We got to say, Oh, there's something going on over here. Um, I'm the man on the ground. God, here are the coordinates. Uh, I need you to send some heavy artillery to this location. And, and he will. And that's what he actually wants from us is to participate with him in the struggle between good and evil. So um, don't let your joy be robbed. I don't know why I'm talking about this. It just started. It just came to me as soon as the episode started. But, but you know, I guess this is what's on my heart right now. So um, do not be robbed of your joy, regardless of what's going on in the world. Um, participate with God in bringing his kingdom to bear and bringing his power to bear in the places that he so desires. You just got to keep your eyes open and you got to ask him. Yeah. And I want to add to that because I'm with you. Uh, one of the ways where you pick up the, one of the most lethal weapons in spiritual warfare, which is joy is to celebrate every victory. One of the things the enemy tries to rob us of is that celebration that we have in Yeshua, that celebration we have in God, our Father. And we have to learn to count every victory, no matter how small it might be. That's one of the ways he gets you. He, he wants you to only look for the big stuff. But actually, if we look for the small things, they add up very quickly. It's just like when, when God allowed the children of Israel to conquer the promised land, he told them it will be little by little that they will conquer and take ground. And it is the same way every day in our lives. We take it one small victory at a time, and we celebrate every last one of them. And then our joy will truly be complete, and no one can take it away from us. Absolutely. Man, that's good advice. By the way, happy Passover season to everybody out <laughs> yes. there. Yes. 
Um, some of you guys have already celebrated Passover and unleavened bread, or you're in the middle of it right now. Um, some of us are on a little bit different calendar, so we're not quite there yet. Like mine begins uh, closer to the end of April, and uh, and that's all interesting calendar stuff that we're still working out to to try and <laughs> hopefully eventually get onto the same schedule. But um, but I'm just happy for those of you who are observing God's appointed times, whether it's earlier or later, whatever. Um, you're doing your best to observe and, um, and happy Passover, happy unleavened bread, happy resurrection day, which, uh, I think is, you know, my opinion is the first fruits of the barley <laughs> and, uh, what a great way to start the year in this month of a this month of Nisan, if you want to use the Babylonian name, the month number one in God's calendar. So happy new year too. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, I hope it's a blessed new year. Yeah. And it's highly appropriate that you talk all of this calendar stuff because today's listener question from, is it Julie? Julie. Yeah. We're actually going to start with the listener question, which is different than I normally do it. I usually put it on the end, but this listener question has to do with what we were talking about in the last episode. And so it's better to address it now. Uh, and really this is something for Terry. So I'm going to let him run with it. Oh dear. Watch out. Um, <laughs> So we were in Genesis chapter eight, uh, last episode, episode number 40, where we talked a lot about 40. Um, and at the, towards the end of that episode, we, uh, we, by, by we, I won't throw Alex under the bus. It was me. <laughs> I made a comment about Daniel 12. And so the question from Julie is, I wondered if you could expand on the Daniel 12 passage idea that the 1335 days plus the 1290 days, which is. 2,625 days. A lot of math, right? Uh, she says, I don't get the mirror idea here. Any way to elaborate? And she's open to explanation. So um, I want to touch briefly on uh, what I was referring to there. So last time we talked a lot about that mirror structure and how it could foreshadow some things in the future. Um, for instance, the stuff in Daniel 12. And I was linking that because uh, as it's typically read in Daniel 12, I, I in that uh, last episode, mentioned, made a mention of 45 days difference between the two. What I, I didn't clarify was that often the way it's read, and, and I actually haven't heard anyone read it different than this, is that the 1290 days are going, and then in parallel, the 1335 days are going. So that would leave only 45 days extra on top of the 1290. And I was suggesting last time that it's actually possible that the 1290 days and the 1335 are in addition to one another, just as the math that Julie here was talking about lays out. That would mean that that time frame being referenced is 2,625 days. And she was saying, I don't get the mirror idea here. So then uh, to link all of that back, because I recognize there's a lot of numbers. It would be really great if I could show this visually, but it's a podcast. So I'll do my best to describe it. Um, if you think of those as sliding time periods, the way it's typically read is that you have the 1290 days happening inside of uh, the 1335 and that there's an extra 45 days that the saints would have to wait to get the blessing that was referred to in Daniel 12. What I was suggesting is that it's actually possible that that's not the case, that they're actually next to each other. And uh, you have 1,290 days and then also another 1,335 days. 
um, representing two separate time periods that just happen to touch one another. Um, the reason why I was talking about the mirror idea is because if you do it that way, you actually land on a time period that's just over seven years, which would then link back to the bigger discussion that we had of uh, talking about sevens. And also in the story of Noah, where we are right now, um, we were in Genesis chapter eight and talking about the dove being sent out twice uh, over week periods of time. So there was two weeks that were at the end of that uh, it's the section from chapter eight, verses six through 12, where it was talking about Noah sending out the raven and sending out the dove. Uh, so the, we, we talked about then how the two back-to-back -back weeks seemed to have some kind of significance that we would expect to see again. And if you added those to 12, the 1290 and the 1335, you would get another seven year plus period. It's not precisely seven years, but it's about seven years. Um, that you would get when you put those two time periods together and that there might be a significance there of another seven backing up with another because we also mentioned last time the two sevens appearing in the story of Joseph because it was seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine um, and all of that sliding around that happens um, could actually be mirrored in some way where there's another 1335 and another 1290 that mirrors on the front end of the 1290 and the 1335 that brings the blessing that the angel speaking, the messenger speaking to uh, Daniel was talking about. Um, and that, that all of that would map really well with what we saw here in the Noah story. We talked about how in the first half of the mirror, there was a lot of condemnation. And on the second half of the mirror, there, there was a blessing that was brought, which since we see that there was a blessing at the end of what the 1335 represents, blessed is he who reaches the 1335, I was making that connection so that all of it came together as a bigger picture. But that's not necessarily the case. I'm, I was just giving an idea. Hopefully that's clear as well that um, I wasn't absolutely certain about that and that that's how it actually should be read. Um, I was not attempting to be dogmatic in any way on that regard. I was just simply seeing something and speaking about what I saw that was possible. Now that I have fleshed that out some more, it, it actually seems even more plausible to me, but someone else might disagree and that's okay too. This is all very difficult without visuals. So I'm sorry to the listeners. I know we're in a podcast setting here and it's having a hard time clicking, or at least it is for me. Um, but keep in mind, we're not trying to lay out a timeline for you right now. What we're doing is getting you thinking. We're highlighting some things, some elements that we see within scripture that we think are going to be in play in the last days as well. Like this mirroring, this is probably going to come into play in some sense, either leading up to the day of the Lord, or maybe mirroring around the beginning of the day of the Lord. Like all of those are questions that we don't have answers to. We're just theorizing right now and we're getting you guys thinking. Maybe you'll find some things in there that you can tell us about and then we can build on each other's thoughts and eventually we might come to a better understanding. I think some of this is gonna, only going to get clearer as we get closer to the end of the age because um, we are going to see new things happening. They're going to make our thoughts click into place some. But 
you know, don't, don't get twisted around the axle about this stuff because there are too many unknowns right now. You're not going to figure it out. I don't think people even should try to nail it down exactly. Um, and one of the things that I want to change about Leviathan's Ruse when I do a second edition, God willing, um, <laughs> is I want to take out the, some of the overly specific parts of the timeline that I included in chapter two there, because, you know, some of it, I gave time frames and I think that's more reasonable. And then there were some other things where I, I was a little more concrete and that was probably a mistake because there are so many things that go, so many variables to be taken into consideration. Um, I don't want to give the impression that I know exactly how the timeline is going to unfold, but it's good to be looking at all of these things with an open mind. And when we see something like 1290 and 1335, we don't just read it one way and automatically assume that that's the right way, which is how most of us have been doing it, right? We've thought 1335 right. is just the culmination of the 1290 plus an additional 45 days. And as Terry is pointing out, that's not necessarily a given. So we need to consider other possibilities. Right. While we're on this, I might as well confuse everybody a little bit more. Because <laughs> uh, I'm confused too, so we'll we'll be confused together. In Daniel, we're also given the number 1260, right? And there's this mysterious 30 day period between the 1260 and the 1290, and we're not told what happens during that 30 day period. And what really makes this confusing is that there should be only a I say should you know in my mind there should be ah. a 28 day period, not a 30 day period, because. 1260 is exactly 360 times three and a half. And you're going to go, what? <laughs> Why do you say that? Why is that important? Mm -hmm, well, mm -hmm. the biblical number of days in a year is 360. In any biblical prophecy, you look at the, the timeline that's given for a year, it's 360 days instead of 365.25. <laughs> yeah. um, but in some of the extra biblical stuff, that we find in Ethiopia and in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have an explanation that there's actually 364 days in every year, but four of those days are called intercalary. They're not counted in the calendar because they are the tekufa, the turning points. That's the Correct. equinoxes mm -hmm. and the solstices. Okay, So there's really 364, but you, you leave out those four, and so there's 360. Now, all of that has to play into the calculations of the end times in some way. And we may not understand it until after the fact, but that all plays in somehow. But I'm, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, okay, well, 1260, that's half of the seven-year period um, times 360 years a day. But then the 1290, that's an additional 30 days. Well, what would happen if I took the four intercalary days and I multiplied that times seven years? Well, you get 28 <laughs> instead of 30, which is so frustrating because I just <laughs> I wanted it to be 30, you know, because that would work perfectly. Oh, there we go. There, That's why there's a 30 day difference because of the intercalary days. No, it's two days short. Um, so those are the kinds of things that uh, can really throw you for a loop when you're trying to, to work with all of these prophetic timelines. And I'm not there yet. I, I don't know how to make it all work. Um, oh, so dude. we're working on that together. Yeah. And, and just... Sorry, there's so much here um, and I can't resist, so I'm not going to. Um, so when we're talking about even these two prophetic time periods of the 1290 and the uh, 1335, 
So it just so happens on the Essenes calendar or the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls calendar, which uh, he was just talking about with 364 days that has the four intercalary days um, each year. To add even more to that, there's sometimes a leap week and things like that. Um, I've actually done some of the work to try to look at, does the 1335 line up with feast days at all if you use that calendar? And it turns out, just as uh, Ken Johnson, who I've, I've actually mentioned before, um, and I'm actually going to sing to do some praise to him this time. I think last time I criticized him. So this time, Ken, you did good. Um, <laughs> like Ken Johnson pointed out that the 1335 days on that calendar, on the Dead Sea Scroll calendar, actually does line up with uh, Moedim or appointed festivals of the Lord. And it lines up with two of them um, and goes across that same two and a half year plus period and lands from uh, the beginning of Sukkot. So the first day of Sukkot, all the way through to Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, whichever flavor you like to call it on that calendar. And so it actually lines up perfectly with the feast days there. And not just that, if you begin the 1290 ahead of that, um, that also lines up the same way. So if, if you do 1290, um, starting on none other than Passover, you start on fat Passover, you'll land on the Feast of um, Feast of Tabernacles. And then if you go 1335 from there, you'll land on a Shavuot or a um, and which it, it's, it's important to note, normally you do the entering of a new covenant of a, or a renewed covenant on Shavuot, just like in Acts chapter two, that's when the apostles and all of them, they, they got baptized with fire um, from the Holy Spirit on that day. Um, and they entered full, full fledged into the new covenant that was brought in by Yeshua. And, um, or at least, they they experienced that that first entrance uh, entrance into that uh, beginning with that first sermon about his resurrection, and so we would expect something similar and just as significant to also land on that Shavuot that we're talking about here now, um, if that is the proper calendar. Which, based on the fact that no other calendar actually has a significance from a thirteen hundred and thirty five day period, that makes it very likely, at least that from the information we have now that that is probably the right calendar to be looking at uh, for these types of, uh, at least the Daniel 12 prophecies, you know, other things we might be talking about other stuff, but all of that uh, can come together and actually form a clearer picture if we use uh, some of the things we're learning as we go, right? But I say all of that to say we could learn something else from some other new, newly discovered scroll or something tomorrow that completely turns everything I just said on head as well. So uh, all of this stuff is conjecture. But with that, I also want to make a note about, you know, why, why would Alex and I ever talk about theorizing things? You know, why won't we only talk about what's certain? Uh, one of the reasons is because, as Alex has already stated, like hearing other possibilities can actually... Uh, fine-tune what we what we do know. It can make some things that we do know more certain. Uh, sometimes it can, uh, opening up to other possibilities can actually help us to uh, be less dogmatic about things that we actually should not be so sure about. And there's a ton, ton of that going on. There are a lot of people who are too sure of themselves because they actually haven't thought about other possibilities other than the ones they have thought about, 
right? And that's actually problematic. In the body of Christ, if we want to be one, we got to recognize everyone coming from their own perspectives, they bring value to the table. And we actually get a clearer picture of what God is doing when we put all of our pieces together, right? Just as I have, even in this talk, have talked about how Ken Johnson, I was like, I don't know if he's right over here, but over here, he's like spot on. Knowing that when we lean on one another and we actually work with one another and be just as the Bible tells us with iron sharpening iron with one another, that's where true unity in the body of Christ comes from. It's freely sharing what we're seeing and what we think is possible and how we view things and putting our views together in a way that makes them coherent with one another because that's actually where it's found. I don't have it all right. Alex doesn't. And none of you listeners, sorry to tell you, you don't have it all put together either. But when we take our pieces and we share with one another in humility and we're able to correct one another, we can see very great things that God is doing and things that are beyond all that we've ever imagined or asked or think, just as Ephesians tells us. Um, so all of that was a mouthful. We've talked a lot about this question. Um, I think it's good stuff. So I'm going to turn it back over to you, Alex. If you'd like to have Watchman Alexander answer your question in a future episode, please send an email to questions at watchmanalexander.com with your city and state or region in the subject line. Okay, with the listener question out of the way, we're going to return to Genesis chapter 8. We're in verse 13 right now. And this is what we read. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. The very first phrase that we have is the one that sticks out to me the most in this section. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month. So we know we'd already talked about how the number 600, the number of years Noah had lived, corresponds to the 6,000 years of human history that will happen before the next judgment. And here we have in the 601st year, so one year after this pivotal mark of 600 or 6,000, then um, in the first month, the first day of the month. So this is New Year's Day. And what an appropriate time for the restart. That has to be significant, don't you think? Yeah. And, and you know, it, it took me several readings of this before I really like kind of got a better sense of the timeline because, you know, it's saying that the water dried up from the earth on that first day, right? That That's not a coincidence. The new year brought a new, <laughs> a new earth, uh, right? But it, there's still time even lagging from there, right? Because this is when he removes the cover, right? So everything's open now, like, we can see around the ark and, and things like that. And what's interesting to me about this this year, because I remember when I was a kid, I, I, I always thought about the 40 days. That's what all the little short stories about the no, like Noah's Ark. 
They only talk about the 40 days. It wasn't until I was an adult where I realized, wait, they were in the arc for an entire year plus. Like I, I was thrown off by that. And even with that, I recognize later in the Torah, um, when it talks about how a person who has a man who has taken a bride, she is with him supposed to be for, for a whole year before he's allowed to have any kind of work. They spin it together. Right. And when you look at that picture on top of here, right, if, if you look at Noah and his family as kind of like the bride uh, entering into this new earth, there's a whole year where they're not doing anything. They're in the ark and they're resting and they're learning one another in really close, tight knit spaces. Right. <laughs> um, for for all of this time, this journey on the ark. And then afterwards, uh, you get a release into the new world where there's work to be done. Right. Um, I see that picture right away when I look at that. And, and if we're still mapping on to the age to come, right, or the day of the Lord coming, we should expect there to be some time lag before the renewal um, fully, fully gets enjoyed, right? Because here by verse 14, uh, says by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry, right? On the first day, the water had dried up from the earth, but it was completely dry by the time you get to the 27th day in the second month. So there's all of this stuff happening and there's a slow process. It's not like, oh, the flood is over. Noah hops out on the first day, right? That There's more to it than that, um, that is going on here. Yeah. I've heard others say similar things about the Torah command that a man can't go to war for a year after he's married. And that is very interesting. And I wonder whether or not we can actually assign that same thing to Yeshua because Torah commands only apply to the people they apply to. I know that sounds obvious, but like there are commands about farming that only apply to farmers. There are commands about priests that only apply to priests, right? Mm -hmm. There's a command that we just spoke of given to uh, soldiers or people who are going to go be soldiers that only applies to newly wed soldiers. And yes, Yeshua will be newly wed at the end of the age, but is he a soldier in that sense? Is he a man that can possibly die? Cause I think that's the, the point of the command is you don't want your new husband to go off and immediately die before you've been able to enjoy that new married life together for at least some time, but Yeshua is not going to die. So I wonder if that command applies to him, but I'm open to the possibility that maybe it does. And if it does, then there might be a year pause in between when the bride is taken up and when the wedding supper happens in, in heaven and when Yeshua comes back to do war. So that's another reason I need, I need to like modify or remove the timeline from my book is what if there is a year pause in there? You know, I didn't take that into account. My question then becomes it morphs into some practical questions about how people on the earth are going to survive for a year at that point, because the earth's been devastated by fire and earthquake and a lot of other worldwide natural disasters. And it's just this, you've had the, the beast kingdom has been destroyed. Uh, well, then it becomes a question of, well, will the beast kingdom even survive another year? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, question marks that pop up when I think about inserting an additional year in there and how would people, how would the Jewish people 
um, the Israelites, I shouldn't say Jewish people, all of the Israelites from the different tribes that were not resurrected, but that are rescued and brought out of slavery, brought out of Babylon, all of that at the end. Um, how are they going to survive either another year in that captivity or if they've already been rescued somehow before Yeshua's arrival, before his campaign, um, how are they going to survive in an earth that's not bringing forth any bounty anymore because of all of the fire and the devastation? It's like, I don't know how that would all synchronize. So I got to reevaluate if that's the fact. Hold it right there, Watchman. Get a cup of tea. It's time for Everything Under the Sun when we take three minutes to hear from the Watchman's wife, Amanda Lawrence. Eschatology, the epilogue. About last time, I know that y'all already know about the importance of eschatology and prophecy. In fact, if you're not a fan of those things, you're on the wrong podcast. I was simply trying to encourage y'all to talk about it, not post something on Facebook and get after people in the comments, start adult God-honoring conversations about it in your church. Only having three, okay, usually longer, minutes to talk about any topic is a challenge, but here we go again, about to tackle spiritual warfare. If you're here, again, you know the basics, that there's an enemy who hates us, wants to destroy anything positive in our lives, and is full of crafty, devious intent to do so. And there are analogies to make here. You're watching a war movie and the soldiers run out holding a pillow and a cupcake and a hardback book. Wrong weapon. Or soldiers run out with guns and then stand there discussing the caliber, the manufacturer, and the ammo. Right weapons, but they're going to waste. Or soldiers running out into battle with guns and then they throw them at the opposition. Right weapons being used incorrectly. Finally, the ignorant dude playing Pokemon Go on his cell phone, aimlessly walking through the battlefield, oblivious to the fight raging around him. No weapons, no awareness. So we get it. There's an enemy and we can pray and fast and close legal access points and be mindful of spiritual open doors. And I say we get it because the more I start to talk about this topic with other believers, the more I hear stories that match my and the Watchmen's experience. We've woken up to demonic presences in our house, lived with enemy oppression that we had to be delivered from, and have felt emotions so incongruous with the moment that it had to have been an attack. And when only some of that had happened, I didn't talk about it. It sounded crazy or cinematic or too spiritual. But, but the more I slowly opened up with, you're going to think this is nuts, but I was surprised that almost everyone I talked to had their own stories. Some of them were way more intense than the ones I had experienced. And again, I found myself asking, why are we not talking about this? Why are there things in our walk that as believers, we shy away from in conversation? The gold standard at family gatherings is to normally stay away from politics and religion. But when you're comfortable talking about religion, why are there subcategories in that that we are still uncomfortable with? So that's why these past three episodes have happened. I want us to be talking about transparency. I want us to be talking about prophecy and eschatology. And I want us to be talking about spiritual warfare. Like it or not, everyone needs to be involved in these conversations. If you haven't had experience with a lack of transparency or a lack of conversations about spiritual warfare or eschatology, that's great. And I want to be where you are because in my entire walk, I've never really heard sermons about any of these topics in the depth that we need. 
I've not heard small groups that are focused right around these things. So again, this is all just my story and my view of things, right? So I am not seeing people experience the freedom that Christ offers. And because of that, there's no transparency in their stuff. We're not going up to our pastors after church and talking to them about how our weeks really were. There might be something like, I need a job, but we're not talking about the really hard, gritty stuff. And maybe because there are so many differing, opposing viewpoints about prophecy and eschatology, just like a lot of social justice issues, we don't normally hear about that from the pulpit either. It's a lot easier to stay safe and kind of cycle through the church-approved sermon topics. And I've definitely never heard a sermon preached in person about what to do if you wake up and there's a demon in your room. So this is my small challenge again, to start having the conversations with the boldness that these topics require. I think I'm just tired of filling out journal after journal in churches and listening to sermons online or whatever that are filled with good things to help me interact with other people, how to interact with my husband, how to manage my finances, how to have good relationships. And then there are several topics that I just don't have anything written down. So please be that annoying person in your congregation who keeps going up to the pastor with sermon ideas for him or small group ideas for him. And that way, if enough people start to do this, we might see some change. We start to have some new conversations in our churches. Speaking of conversations, you can always reach me at thewatchmanswife at gmail.com. I mean, all of this is good, right? As we we think about this stuff, those kinds of questions are what push us further um, and what cause us to try to look at things a little differently and open our minds to other possibilities, right? Just as we said before. I mean, even with that, as I think about this, I don't know that you insert a year uh, to to it, right? It might be that the same stuff we were sharing with our, our answering our listener question about that that 1335 actually includes the year that the pause is actually at the beginning of that time frame, And these are these are the kinds of things that, well, you could just kind of sit back and think about it and, you know, ask the Lord, what, what do you say, God? What do you say about it to uh, help me understand the picture and to know what to expect and all of those things? Um, oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's going to pay to be flexible once we get to the, to these events unfolding, because you're going to, you're going to just roll with it, right? You're going to be able to <laughs> yeah. roll with the punches because I don't want to get there and think that it's one way and then it's not happening that that particular way. And I'm flustered. I'm uncertain. I don't know what to tell the people that are looking to me for guidance because I'm like, I, I, well, I thought it was going to be this thing. Sorry, guys. You know, so I got to <laughs> yeah. I got to backpedal a little bit on some of these things related to the, the timeline and just say, yeah, I don't know. Let's think about all the possibilities and we'll kind of find out when we get there to some degree. But going back to the 601st year, that is pretty significant to me that it happens on New Year's Day in the year following that 600 mark. Um, so I, I am going to try and think about that and incorporate that into my understanding of how the day of the Lord, how and when that's going to kick off. But as you said, there, there's even a little bit of a waiting period after that before they can actually exit the ark. 
Um, things have to calm down. The world has to return a little bit more to a state of normalcy. And then they come off and uh, we continue in verse 20 with the, the sacrifices and the covenant. Terry, why don't you go ahead and pick up in verse 20? Yeah. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord um, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. That last one, verse 22 man that that's big um and some of your versions might have that uh indented a little bit because i believe it's meant to be like a a poem um is the form of that last verse this is important for us to recognize because we should expect the the summer and the winter and the cold and heat and day and night to continue with the, the sea time and harvest all the way through to the end of the age before we get new heavens, new earth, because the old earth passes away, right? That's what that's signifying to us. So we should see that order continue through the stuff we're expecting to see. Yes. Although it may get a little wacky, it, mm -hmm. there are prophecies that tell us that things are going to go askew, but you're not going to completely lose the seasons right. or day and night and seed time and harvest. So you're always going to be, even though there will be massive famine for a while, you're always going to have some kind of harvest time. You're going to have seasons that maybe get a little weird, a little extreme, a little bit off their normal timing, but you're still going to have seasons. So as these things get very strange, don't get overwhelmed and thinking, oh, it's, it's going to all change now. It's all going to be different. Are, are we going to even have a season? You know, the next season that's coming up, is it even going to happen? Yes, it is. It may just be a little different. <laughs> yeah. Well said. Um, also, like, it's important uh, to note, I think uh, going back again, we talked a little bit about the Feast of Weeks and entering into covenants. I believe this time frame that we're in, uh, when we're talking about verses 20 and, and forward, we're actually talking about that Pentecost time frame or the Feast of Weeks time frame uh, with Noah doing this burnt offering of clean animals, by the way, I think I think that's been addressed before on the show. But uh, there's already an assemblance way before uh, the law of Moses is pinned down in stone or, or whatever have you of clean animals versus unclean animals. I don't know if we, we talked about that already, but you see that here because the animals that are there for sacrifice, they're already present with Noah. He knows about them and he's sacrificing uh, to the Lord, Lord God. Yep. He already knew the correct procedure in which animals were clean and which weren't. It wasn't something that was given later and for a temporary dispensation. This was in place from the beginning. The other important thing to point out here in terms of eschatology is that God says, he promises, he will never again strike down every living creature. So although the last days will be like the days of Noah, it won't be exactly the same as the days of Noah because God is not going to destroy all living things with the fire judgment as he did with the flood judgment. Yeah. There are going to be people who survive through this. There are going to be animals that survive through this coming fire judgment. 
which is great. We, uh, we're, we're happy about that. I think, um, not a, a complete and total reset in the sense that the flood event was nonetheless, man is still wicked and deserves to be destroyed off the face of the earth. It's just that God has decided not to do it that way the second time. Yeah. I actually have a question. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so I, this is something I've been wrestling with. I, I legitimately do not know. I'm not certain. Um, you know, even when we talk about the fire judgment, when you read the book of Revelation, which we recognize is, is not necessarily linear or anything like that, but when I read it, and I still get this impression to today, uh, the part where it refers to Gog and Magog and a fire judgment coming at that time when Gog and Magog armies surround Jerusalem and fire comes down from the Lord, right, and, and burns them up. Uh, I know some people equate that uh, some people equate that with the Battle of Armageddon, and I, I don't read it that way. Um, and Neither as we're talking, I. as I'm talking through this now, I'm not even certain that the fire judgment. I know that there are there's some fire pieces to the judgments that come on the beast kingdom and his armies. I get that, um, but I'm not even certain that that's the fire judgment that everyone's being preserved. Well, will be preserved. Uh, no matter which judgment is coming, but that may not be the all destructive, all destructive of the earth's surface uh, fire judgment. And so I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, you know, I need to clean that up for myself. The fire judgment that we see against Gog Magog versus the fire judgments that uh, come earlier in the book of Revelation, kind of making a dis clean distinction between them, especially when we start getting in this, you know, talking about some of these days and. Uh, timeline stuff because as i read it the gog magog is at the end of the seventh day and the um the end beast of the kingdom, seventh millennium yeah right right mm -hmm. the seventh day millennium uh and that the beast kingdom one is at the end of the sixth day yeah that's how i read it too i don't see any indication in that late part of revelation that we're resetting to a previous time it doesn't seem like there's any place for that break and then going back prior to the millennium because the destruction of all the people that are attacking Jerusalem follows right on the heels of the discussion about the millennium in the book yeah. of Revelation. So I agree with you on that. Um, I think, and we're going to have to do a whole show about the fire judgment at some point in the future when we get to that point of our study. And we'll yeah. take a look at all the different prophecies that have to do with the, the fire in its various forms and in the times that it's set down because it's more than once even in revelation you see it's more than once um right, fires right. thrown down from the altar but i think that what we've got here is another one of those prevenient fulfillments where the great fire purging happens at the end of the seventh millennium where everything is purged away most likely i think and now even that is not for for certain because what revelation says is heaven and earth fled away and right. then we have a the great white throne judgment and then uh, all of the wicked and hell and um and some of the angels the fallen ones are all thrown into this lake of fire but we don't know if the if that lake of fire is somehow associated with heaven and earth fleeing away we don't know if there's some other form of fire that spreads out from jerusalem because god destroys the attacking armies with fire but we're not told that that fire then consumes the whole world. So 
that's questionable. Is there going to be a purging by fire that causes the heavens and earth to flee away? Or is that process some other kind of process? But if that's the case, and it is fire that that melts everything, like Peter said, because Peter says, Mm -hmm. prophesies in one of his epistles, that all of the elements that, that everything created will be melted by fire. So that's what makes people think that after the seventh millennium, everything, all of the cosmos is melted by fire. And we have this judgment and we reset with a new heaven and a new earth. But Peter may have been doing what a lot of the prophets did, which was combining a previous partial fulfillment with the full final fulfillment. So he may have been seeing the fire come on the earth and, and purge it in large part um, at the end of this age. So at the end of the sixth millennium, and then also seeing everything be destroyed and melted by fire at the end of the seventh millennium and putting those together as, as one incident, which is oftentimes what happened with previous prophets because it was like they saw the mountaintops. Um, it, when you, there's a good analogy that's used by scholars. When you look at a mountain range and you see mountain peaks right next to each other, it can seem in our perception as if those peaks are very close together, as if they almost overlap. But in reality, there's many miles between each peak. There's a valley in between these mountains. And similarly, the prophets may have seen the peaks or the climaxes of these different events that were very similar and not seen that huge valley of time separating those two events. So maybe that's what Peter was doing. I'm mapping with that. That's also what we were talking about a couple episodes ago when we talked about the uh, two baptisms of the water and the fire judgments, right? Uh, we're talking about that ultimate one when we talk about the fire baptism of the earth. Um, so that would be, in, in my thinking, the end of the seventh, uh, the seventh millennium uh, was when, is when that baptism would take place. I think that we will see as we look at a lot of uh, end of the age prophecies that there there's fire that comes upon the world in various ways. And like you were saying before, it comes from below and above, most likely just as the waters came from above and below during the flood. Um, in the last days, we have every indication that there's going to be a ton of volcanic activity. So you're going to have fire belching up from within the earth. Um, and then you, you also have this fire coming down from the heavens in the form of, uh, most likely in the form of asteroids, but also in the form of some other kind of fire that's supernatural, because we see in a number of places that uh, it's hurled down almost like it was upon Sodom and Gomorrah, like brimstone and fire from the sky, which is different than what you would have if you had you know, meteors or an asteroid come in. It's not that same kind of brimstone. But yeah, we'll look at all of that in another show when we ha- when we can dedicate the time specifically to that stuff. Yeah, I mean, along with that, I w- I would like us to one day talk when we talk about the two witnesses uh, to talk about what happens to them as well, because there's fire that's brought down from heaven uh, by the false prophet actually, and that that maps a lot really well with the Elijah stuff too. So, you know, this hell of fire coming down thing, um, it's always been something that's been attributed to God alone, being able to bring down fire, just as, you know, Jesus, when he's talking to the the Pharisees, when they're like, you know, bring, call down fire from heaven to prove who you are, right? That's, it's a test. So that'll play in as well. Yeah, yeah, sure will. 
that's all the time that we have for today, I think. Yep. We're going to have to pick back up next time with discussion about the covenant that God makes through Noah. And any last thoughts before we end out? No, I think we're good. We'll, we'll start with that on chapter nine and talk about the tenets of that covenant and maybe get into the Noahide laws. Well, then everybody have a blessed week, have an upright week, and go forth in the power of the Lord. Until next time, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Watchmen out. Shalom. Shalom.